Who's slacking me? My interview with Todd is right now. Oh, God. Okay, two seconds. Please hold. Sparkling clean. Welcome back to Mastering Retail, a podcast masterclass on how to succeed in the world of e-commerce brought to you by Essential Digital Commerce. My name is Emma Irwin, and I'm a senior editor and specialist at Essential. As always, I have a special guest with me, an OG fan of the podcast who is going to walk us through how to have an omni-channel mindset as a brand from three different angles, the digital shelf, search, and ratings and reviews. And it will make sense why I had to show up to this episode with particularly clean teeth. So let's meet our guest. My name is Todd Hassenfeld. I'm at Colgate-Palmolive on the Global Digital Organization as the Ecom Director of Growth Strategy and Planning. And what does the Ecom Director of Growth Strategy and Planning do? You know, overall, it's it's relatively an ambiguous title, but I think it's because, you know, of my past experiences, it allows me to have no borders and not necessarily from the obvious global geographical piece, but to really help connect the dots, Right. So to go from a marketing meeting to a sales meeting, to a legal meeting, to a supply chain meeting, and how do we make sure that one, we're being as effective and efficient as we can, and how can we really amplify the best practices of our teams across the globe so others can learn faster, but also then solicit support and be okay with that and say, hey, I need help on this. Chances are there's so many talented people at Colgate across the world that someone's going to have done that or tried the way not to do it. So work with a great team of of other people on the global digital organization that have more specific titles. But I think that connecting the dots is the best way to look at it. And, and thankfully, we have great support from our senior leadership and then with our division, you know, local teams as well. Perfect. All right. You ready for this one? What is the last thing you purchased on Amazon? So I'm kind of a sucker for Woot, you know, a subsidiary of Amazon. I get their daily email and then I look at it a lot. So ironically, I literally just ordered it. It'll come up today. But there is a T-shirt that says progress over perfection. I couldn't believe there was actually a shirt. I didn't have to make this. It was out there and it was on a Woot deal. So it was fantastic. So got one for myself and and some members of the team. And uh, I'm excited to uh, share it with them when it comes in. I like that. Is that like your mantra for your team? Progress over perfection? It is. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit, but I think it's really important, right? That progress over perfection means that we're okay with everything not being perfect. And it's more about just continuously getting better because as you know, this space doesn't stand still. And um, if we're constantly waiting for perfection, it's not going to happen, right? A lot of times I'll also say, you know, let's plan for pivots, not perfection, and we'll move a lot faster. You might have to make the t-shirt plan for pivots. I don't know if that one's going to come up on a Woot deal. <laughs> if it does, then we know they're listening, right? The the monkey chat is listening to us <laughs> and they'll, they'll put it on a t-shirt. Facts. So uh, yes. <laughs> Before we get to the next question, if you just heard monkey chat and you think you're missing something, don't worry. Monty and Mortimer are Woot.com's monkey mascots who you'll find guiding Wooch chats and forums. Okay, next one, I'm going to ask it to you now and we'll come back to it at the end to round us out. But something that lives on your digital wish list, i.e., you know this question if you've listened to the podcast, sits in your cart forever and you just don't purchase it. So we'll come back to it and I'll dig into why at the end. Sound good? It does. And I'll, I'll even, I'll do a double tease here. Oh. I think I have an answer that 
has not been shared in format and or product. So I'm excited. Oh, now I'm even more excited. I have to not. I'm like, well, let's speed through it, but we can't do that. (laughs) Forget all of the other content. We're going straight to the end. Before we dig into our three key areas of focus for an omni-channel mindset within brands, it would probably be a good idea to talk about what an omni-channel mindset actually means. Yeah, the word omni-channel, I think it's loved and it's loathed, depending on who you ask, even within a company, right? And so I think it's the concept that has to come into play here. And the the best way of taking it away from maybe a buzzwordy kind of word, but to explain what we're trying to do with it. And I give credit to a LinkedIn post I saw a while back from Harry Joyner, but it was SAFA, S-A-F-A. And it means the consumer starts anywhere, finishes anywhere. So that SAFA mindset, one, because it's you know different for the most part, But when you think about with those four words, it doesn't matter what channel it is. It doesn't matter if it's sales or marketing, it's retail media or traditional media. If you're just looking at that, the consumer can start anywhere and finish anywhere. And that's many iterations of that. I think you can start thinking about an omni-channel mindset in a different way versus just thinking of it as, let's say, brick and mortar or e-com or you're talking pure play or marketplace or 1P or 3P. And you get maybe too caught up in the in the nuance of it. But I think that SAFA one is is probably the the best way that's resonated with people to um, you know, how do we act on omni-channel mindset? Do you love it or loathe it? I love whatever connects people together, right? And again, going back to my role of is it understood by by most, or at least like when you say omni-channel, are more most people have an idea of what that means? Yes. And then you can expand on it. So if it's a starting point, a common ground, right? A lot of times we'll talk about how do we define and align, whether it's a topic, whether it's a channel, different things across the globe. I think omni-channel at least is one because it's loved and loathed is at least known. You know, it's half the battle. Even when you go back to like, think about negotiation with with whoever, (laughs) family accounts, whatever, if they're not talking to you, you don't have a chance. Even if they're upset, at least you can have a dialogue. So yes, I'm fine with the omni-channel moniker, but I I understand why people don't like it either. Now that we've got an expert's definition of the main concept of this episode, we can move into those three areas of focus, which again are digital shelf management, search, and ratings and reviews. These three areas are super important to break down and analyze as they really show how all of the nuances of all the different moving parts of commerce really do connect. First up is, we're going to talk about digital shelf management first, and then we'll kind of roll into search and ratings and reviews. But digital shelf management, can you tell me your interpretation of what the digital shelf is, which another one that seems really simple, but even I on like LinkedIn see all this discourse of like, the digital shelf is infinite. No, it's not infinite. What is your definition here? Digital shelf one may not be a great term because it impacts more than just digital, first of all, right? But for sure. I think overall, like top line, digital shelf, and we can get in, we'll talk about definitions and variations and all that, but the digital shelf should be looked at as importantly or critically as you look as your at your physical shelf, right? If you've been in a brand long enough, you know the store tours that happen when 10 people walk into an aisle, stare at the set for 10 minutes and, and take notes and, and you do that. And that's needed. But are we do we have the same kind of focus and emphasis, the digital shelf, right? No matter the site. So I think I think that's one thing. 
But I think when you look at digital shelf management, it's aligning for your organization on what are the core KPIs. And so we kind of look at like core four KPIs of availability, retailer search, product content, and then ratings and reviews. Now I know like from a local team perspective, that's the global look. From a local team perspective, they'll dive into price and promotion, you know, and sales and share and, and absolutely. But when we look at how do we measure this and how do we try to get action, you know, those are the core four that we look at. I think digital shelf is the catalyst for omni-channel mindset, right? Again, if you think about this as not just impacting online sales, but but also in-store. And really, if you're doing this really well, digital shelf management, a couple of things start to happen. You leverage it for an omni-channel JBP or it becomes the catalyst to have an omni-channel JBP. But if the retailer sees you as a brand really using the data in a helpful way for them, for the brand, for the consumer, ultimately, they're probably going to give you more information, right? They may provide you with conversion rate data or search term uh, data that you may not get on their site typically, um, especially if it's you know not Amazon with SFR, let's say. But if you're not, then it's probably going to be either we'll charge you for the data or we're not going to give you the time of day. So I think that's one catalyst. And then, you know, is are you looking at your competitor digital shelf? Just like when you go into those physical stores and you look at, okay, who's got an end cap? How am I fighting for my planogram space once or twice a year? I think the digital shelf, yes, measure yourself, but you have to look outwardly because that's what the consumer's seeing. And not even just your category. Who's really winning? in your category, but then what are some tactics and, and you know tips and tricks that you can grab from other categories that maybe are more mature than yours, depending on your brand? And that perspective is very much coming from like the brand looking at your performance across the shelves. Can you go a little bit broader and talk more about like how the consumer views the digital shelf and the physical shelf and how this all interacts, which I'm sure, wink, wink, goes back to the PDP. The PDP and this goes, you know, the SAFA mindset, right? They may research at home first on the PDP, right? Search a category they're interested in, right? So I'm interested in whitening toothpaste. I want to do this. I've heard about it. Let me learn. So I go to my site. I type in whitening toothpaste and you see the search results that pop up there. So that's one part of it, right? Retailer search. But then, okay, which one has the best image or title that attracts me or price point, right? Varies by person. And now you get a chance, you get a, you get a glance or a chance. They click into it and they look. Now they have a wealth of information, right? They have your images, hopefully. <laughs> they have <laughs> multiple, hopefully, bullet points that help convey why, how, when I should use this, right? What am I getting if I'm ordering it? And then, you know, if you look below, you know, whether it's A plus or enhanced content, if you really want to dive deeper, you can have all these images and stats and comparisons. And then probably one of the more overlooked ones is that ratings and reviews. What is the rating? If I'm just looking quickly, what's the number? Or if I am researching maybe for the first time, let me look at the five-star reviews. Let me look at the ones. Let me look in between. But you're really getting this picture that you wouldn't just necessarily in a store looking at a product on a, on a physical shelf. Now, they may do this whole thing in a shorter version in the store as well. But I think that PDP no matter what site it is or your own D2C site, provides so much opportunity to both connect and convert with the consumer. And maybe, you know, it's not the first time all the time that they make the decision to convert. Maybe they're just thinking about it a little bit. And if you really have great content and a great PDP, 
you have a better chance of either reminding them when they are in a store, when they're searching somewhere else, they see one of your DSP ads or something on connected TV. Like this all comes together if you're, if you're doing it right. And I think that connection of PDPs should have the same messaging that you maybe you have in a store or that you do have on a national campaign. Yes, you vary your titles and bullet points by retailer keywords or by you know kind of the consumer, right? You may have a different PDP on Thrive Market than you do Target, but don't confuse the consumer, right? Try to connect, try to convert, and don't assume everything is going to convert the first time. And don't assume a PDP is only for conversion. <laughs> There's enough instances of how people have built brands by just having really great PDPs. For sure. And I even, our omni-channel episode with Scott Benedict, back from our Walmart season, he had this line, which I'm just going to have to like insert right here of him saying the powers in the PDP. And he said the powers in the PDP. And back then I was kind of like, yeah, okay. But then I started paying more attention to what I do when I'm shopping. And it's like, I can be in a store. I see a new brand. I'm open to whatever product it is and a new brand, but I'll go right on Amazon and like check the product to see the ratings and reviews because you don't see those in store. And then like vice, not vice versa, but maybe I see something on Instagram and then I go check it out in the store and it all kind of, it all ties together. It's amazing. Well, and, and think about that phone is in most people's hands all the time, right? Walmart has given data on this, McKinsey, there, there's all the stats out there, but even if you're not thinking about it, but you let's say you do go to a store that has your product or the product you're looking for behind security now, right? Because of so many theft issues or a big wrap of a security tag. Now you can't look at the even the packaging or you have to go find someone for, for take a while. Now you can look at your phone there, right? Or the screens now all in the stores and and, and you know, Tesco's on top of this, Walmart and others are and, and you know, a lot more are going to, but the PDP is going to be the source for a lot of these, whether it's an end cap, a smart cart, a cooler screen. Now that PDP, you could probably make the case to anyone inside your organization is impacting in-store sales. And if that starts to happen real quick and your PDPs aren't up to speed, that now it's going to be looking back going, oh, why didn't we pay attention to this? Or why are we not updating it more frequently, right? So there's enough proof that consumers go to PDPs that look up the information. And when you look at, you know, just how much that is done and think about digitally influenced sales, right? Over 60% now and up to 70 within by 2027. Why would you not prioritize the PDP? Okay, if we haven't convinced you of the power of the PDP yet, I'm open to suggestions here. In fact, we're open to feedback in general. So leave us a rating or a review, please. Anyways, we got through the first key element of focus, digital shelf management really via the PDP. So next, we're going to dig into search from an omni-channel mindset, and the PDP carries over here too, because when you search something on Amazon, Walmart, or wherever, you're probably gonna end up clicking into a product detail page, right? So search, but from an omni-channel mindset. Where do we start to begin to think about this? Broadly from an omni-channel perspective, give credit to Patrick Miller you know, of Essential, who has been talking about this for a while, right? But when you think about retail media and the big dollars that Amazon has in the last year shared what that number is. And now others are trying to get it right. And others are starting retail media number, uh, retail media networks. The, the draw of that money and trying to get more money from the brands means that they want more SKUs to come into play. And so, so there's more people or more brands bidding on non-branded terms, right? 
So that means they're coming into a, a brick and mortars site, right? Whether it's walmart.com, Walmart Marketplace, or Kroger Miracle, or any, you know, any of those. But now you have more competition. But what, what we've seen already, and you know, a lot of these are digitally native brands or just big brands with uh, a, a broader selection, is that online piece that was really helping build the retail media is now making it into the in-store shelf or in the in-store planogram because they've had such great success online because they've done a great job with their PDPs and with search and getting awareness. So now instead of brand focus groups, hey, the focus group said they would love this. They always do. But now it's like real performance. And these buyers, it's critical to their job to pick the right SKUs to bring into the store, right? So if they have the online data, it's a better chance, right? So I think that's one of it, you know, one of the items to consider. But then when you think about like retail media specifically, it's well, as a brand, how do we prioritize which ones to go, you know, to to invest in? Understand that all retail media networks are not the same, whether from use case to abilities to what they report. But I think you have to have a real conversation internally about one, knowing how much you're spending and where, how quickly are you getting those reports? And shout out to essential family of brands. They do that on a daily basis. Um, but if you don't have that. If you don't have that kind of reporting, it can go sideways, right? You you can blow through your budget or you don't even know something until a month, a quarter, a half year later. So know how much you're spending. Then the second part is, well, how well am I spending this, right? How are we measuring effectiveness? And of course, everyone, and I know this is a word that doesn't exist from previous podcasts or episodes, but incrementality. Side note here, Todd is doing my job for me, referencing our episode history. If you're confused, Head back to our Amazon Masterclass episode two for Danny Hoffman's speech on how incrementality is not actually a word, but is an incredibly important concept in our industry that you'll hear even more about throughout our other episodes, as well as other podcasts. Gotta step up my game here. But how do you make sure that you have a smart bidding strategy, right? So you're, let's talk about branded terms. What is the right percentage? Well, it depends on how much you're getting conquested or not. Even think about the SKUs or ASINs you put into a branded term. Why put your top organic SKU in, if you're not getting conquested, in your paid re you know, uh, results? Like they're going to click on the paid one. That, that That's not incremental. Put some of your new innovation. Put some of your second tier ones. Put a regiment thing. If you have a family of brands, maybe. But, and make sure you're not bidding against each other. But I think this retail media piece and retail search it impacts your organic search too. And people can't forget that because this isn't just about you know pay to play or the all the analogies people make. There is an element of that, but it helps your organic search because if you improve glance views and conversion, great. But also if you're not, you know, if you're not doing this right, you it does hurt your your brand awareness, right? This isn't just bottom of funnel. You can track this, you know, especially like on Amazon, where are my branded search terms? or you know, the number of times people are searching my branded search terms improving as I've been doing paid media. And then you can kind of adjust and kind of shift either to different tactics or whatever. But also remember the retail media, you know, there's different elements. This isn't just search, it's display, CTV. I mean, again, this all goes depending on the capabilities, but this all gets connected. And I think that's where like things like Amazon Marketing Cloud can help validate or invalidate theories that you've had either with your agency or, or yourself internally as a brand. But the more data, the more right data and the relevant data that's actionable, you can get to look at this, the quicker you can get over the discussion of, 
well, just there's so many of them. And where's the money coming from? Well, maybe there's some tactics that aren't working. So now you shift the money from that, right? So this isn't just like adding to the pot of money. There is an element of that, but you either add because it's justified and not because of just ROAS, but a lot of other metrics, but also, ooh, that's not working. That's not working. Let's pull from there, right? I think that's where you really get efficient. And that wraps key element two, the importance of search from an omnichannel mindset. Last, but certainly not least, we're going to dig into ratings and reviews because the power that lives within your ratings and reviews, found on your PDPs, of course, common theme here, is really kind of incredible. But while I'm thinking about ratings and reviews on one PDP, let's expand into that omnichannel mindset. It really is the voice of the consumer, right? And they're both good and bad. And I think there's so many ways, and I've used this at other companies and we use it here, but how do you tie these into not only the, the rating or how many reviews you have, which are definitely important, but how do you tie this into innovation? How do you talk to marketing about what's working? How do you talk about your content teams from, okay, let's amplify this, people love it, or let's address this, it's not working, let's get ahead of it. What are our competitors' ratings and reviews? If it's a weakness of them, it's a strength for us, how can we incorporate that in? And going back to that kind of internal versus external perspective, listen, there's enough studies out there. Consumers believe ratings and reviews more than they do brands. Tough to say as a brand, but it, it is reality and people will look at word of mouth um, more than they will. And make sure your consumer affairs team, right? Are, are they, re if, if you can, I know Amazon's turned it off and some others, but if you can respond to these, make sure you have a process, a thought, you know, kind of like, how do we address negative ones, right? Typically just direct in the call uh, or email, you know, don't, don't get into a, <laughs> a dispute on, on the review, but how are you making sure everyone that could benefit from this sees it. Even from a packaging perspective, if you have a lot of rips, tears, leaks, whatever, make sure supply chain and packaging is seeing this because it can help amplify your own messaging that you're trying to sell internally, right? Here's the voice of the consumer. So, and, and even think about frequency now, right? Because Amazon has now shifted instead of the ones that had the most upvotes and whatever their kind of calculation was, for the most part, within the last six weeks, this is really current, right? And so, how you have to look at it even more if you weren't before, but it, you know, the consumer now that's looking at these reviews on page one, let's say on your PDP, man, that that's as current as it gets. So you have to really be able to um, plan for pivots, not for perfection, right? And adjust as you go. Yeah. And I, I love the innovation part because like your ratings and reviews can tell you what people, like if there's some significant flaw with the product that so many people have, you can build that and like in the next iteration of the product, fix that. And if you want to enter like with a new product launch in an entirely new category, just look at the ratings and reviews of the competitors in the category and you know what people like and what they don't. And bam, a new product that solves those issues. Yeah. I mean, just one quick example. When I was at Glambia, I'm going to give like Drew Donnelly and Ashley Zhao and, and Ian Forrester a lot of credit here. And Ashley found this on one of our products. It was unflavored protein powder. She was seeing that reviews and frequently bought with were not pre-workouts or protein bars. It was cookbooks, baking sheets. People were using unflavored protein in recipes. And back then, this was a while ago, it was a huge insight that led to a lot of different innovation, different, uh, even how we um, kind of focused on recipes then. So, I mean, Ashley just did a fantastic job looking at that. And then it was amplified with our consumer affairs team and everything like that. So there, there are real examples of this happening. You just have to pay attention. For sure. And I learned all kinds of new things here and there, reading reviews of how to use a product. And I'm like, well, I never thought of that. And then you have more use cases for a product. 
incredible. Exactly. Yes. Okay, we're going to go into your digital wish list. I am incredibly just excited to hear what this digital wish list concept is for you. Yes. So I will send you the image of this if, if you don't believe me. I have an isopure protein powder tub in my cart for the last three years <laughs> and an amino energy pre-workout for the last two years. And here's why. They originally were put there via Alexa when I was trying to see like I used to like ask the device, what are the best protein powders and see if it matched actual results. It didn't back then. It does now. But I also wanted to see how long would it stay in there if I added something to my cart from a voice device. Hmm. It's been three and two years and it hasn't come out yet. I will say the retargeting was impacted early on. It has not as much anymore. I, I still buy products anyway, so I, I don't know. Probably my old team has, has blocked me anyway somehow. But I think, yeah, in my cart from Alexa has been in, you know, one product's been in there for three years and another one for two years. So I don't know how long it's going to last, but uh, it, it hasn't been taken off yet. I was going to ask, will you ever buy them? I do buy them just on different sites or different ways. I, I make sure I don't go through the one that's saved for later. So that's probably another reason why I'm maybe not as retargeted as much either. But uh, yeah, I'm really curious on how long this will go. Will, will it be 10 years? Will I get to a decade of something in my cart from a voice device? I feel like there's nothing stop. Like there's no reason for them to just make it disappear or take it out. Like it just, it's gonna be there forever infinite taking that to the grave yeah. I, I was hoping the image would stay the same they really make this a relic but the image they're doing a good job of updating their pdps and it's connected so i don't Darn, have could have had i a do piece i do of... have the little gray thing that says added three years ago via alexa could have had a piece of history there if the image had stayed the same i know right i can confirm that i saw with my own eyes these protein powders saved in todd's cart via alexa from two and three years ago try and beat that actual physical proof or digital of a digital wishlist item. With that, we are at the end of another episode of Mastering Metail. Thank you to Todd of Colgate Palmolive for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it, leave a rating and or review, send us feedback, the usual, but we really do appreciate it. And go follow Todd on LinkedIn. You will have zero regrets. He has a continuous wealth of knowledge. This episode was produced by Klaus Cancel with sound design by Enos Tench. See you next time. <laughs>